Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just thank you for your goodness. We just thank you particularly this morning for um, bringing us here together. Thank you that you would teach us and help us by your spirit. I pray for those who are here that know you, that you would um, let them understand the deepness of your love and that have that fullness of joy that Andrew talked about and brought from your word earlier. Something you advertise a lot, fullness of joy. Rich, deep, new joy. Um, despite what happens around us. So I pray that you give us that. And then, Father, I pray for those that are here today who are still understanding who Jesus is or coming to hear the gospel for the first time online or in person. I pray, Jesus, that you would help them understand who you are, what you're doing, what you're offering us. Open their eyes and give them joy in you. Let them, let them taste of the sweetness of the Son of God. I pray that you'd be with me as I would speak this morning. I pray that you'd bring for us a great understanding and encouragement and refreshing out of your word. In Christ's name, amen. So, um, I had a plan for this Sunday's sermon, and then I just honestly, as I prayed and thought this week, I just felt like the Lord changed my heart in a direction to go. Um, b- back in, um, back in, oh, let's just say 1992, um, some of us remember 1992. A whole bunch of us don't remember 1992. I went on this men's retreat, and there's this really great speaker with a really great name. His name is Harry Walls, and uh, really is. It's really funny. Uh, but a really godly man and uh, a great teacher and a pastor, and, uh, and he led a men's retreat I was at, and he, and he just basically opened the scriptures and kind of walked us through a large portion of First, uh, First Thessalonians, and it was so helpful to us, you know, and it was just a week we were down in a place called San Inez, California, where like these really cool, slopey hills that for three weeks a year are green, and all the rest of the years are just brown, because that's what California is, is brown all the time. When it's not black from fire, it's just brown from dry. And uh, we sat there in the green, slopey hill, and he just taught us, and it was just, man, it was so good. It was one of the first times I'd actually ever sat down in a non-sermon environment and had someone just kind of crack the scriptures and look up and look down, look up and look down. It's very helpful to my heart. I want to do that a little bit with you this morning over a rather large portion of Scripture. You're going to look at, see how big this is. You're going to like, oh no, we're going to be having dinner here. You're not going to be having dinner here, Lord willing. Um, we're going to move rather quickly through it. The reason we're going to be in this text is because, um, I'll just be honest with you, I, uh, I've just been struggling with fear. Last week we fin- finished the sermon in, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, and we hit the portion where we saw the bravery and the faith of Jesus and his disciples, and we talked about not being ruled by fear. It's fine to have fear. It's not fine to stay in fear and be ruled by fear. Uh, those who are ruled by fear are called cowards in Scripture, and it's actually part of the signs of living in darkness is that you are a coward in the end of Revelation. It's kind of a, a unique pop-up over there. But the opposite is to be of courage, to take heart. So we talked briefly about that last week, to encounter fear. But what do you do by fear? Will you be ruled by it, or will you be able to master it and take heart and take of courage? So we looked at that last week, and I was just really wrestling with it this week. Um, some of you guys, especially in our MC, uh, we, were, we were talking about some stuff, and the discussion came up how I'm trying to memorize Psalm 16 right now. Um, a number of you guys are memorizing down our, our new church memory list. I really encourage you to lock that stuff down. Uh, for me, I've got most of those down now, and, um, and so Psalm 16 has got some goodies. We read it this morning, but it's got a lot about um, the Lord has promises that I think I need. And I've just been wrestling with fear just because, um, oh man, I feel like my world's swirling around. And I think that the idols of my heart, I have many of them, things that I 
by nature think are going to save the day and do well, they're just under threat. Um, I still have this longing in my heart for the classic American dream. One where I can work hard and get my stuff, have my family, have them not all be idiots, have us all kind of like each other, uh, have margin time of doing stuff. Um, you guys aren't idiots. I, um, <laughs> well, we are. That's the truth. We are, right? We know each other. So, um, And then my grandkids, and they, they could all have their little empires, whatever, and, you know, these amazing benefits that I've seen happen for many generations around me that my heart just longs for a have-it-all, have-it-now, here life. I don't happen to like the idea of luxury lot, yachts or having my own plane, or I don't, I don't like the idea of working 70 hours to have more money and more stress. That's not my gig. Maybe when I was younger. But now my gig's different. Um, those natural idols, right? Well, I know that that is my natural brand of idolatry. I know that's the way that my heart tends to go towards for me. And I think that for a lot of you guys, we're the same. Um, if, if we, because a lot of us come from this rather the same socioeconomic status, we have some of the same idols. You change the cultures, change the people, and you'll shift the idols around a little bit. So idols, for me and for many of you, um, th the issue is they're really under threat. I mean, really. That idea of the good old-fashioned American dream in that way, um, while we've known as believers, while we've known that should not be our dream and that should not be our hope to have our best life and have it now in that way, um, realistically, you see it falling apart around you. Um, on the news, everywhere, like that, the hope of that is a, is, a, is a shading, fading hope for your kids, for your grandkids, for the rest of our lives. And um, I think it just causes me fear, you know, that uh, when, I'm, when, I'm un, when I'm untethered to Jesus in my mind, it just causes me fear and anxiety. And so what do I do? I avoid or I do some other things or I watch more news or watch more Twitter or whatever I like. For me, I tend to be, I tend to be the guy who likes to look in the window and watch the meteor coming at me. Some of you guys tend to be the people who want to get drunk on the couch with meteors coming at you. But, like, we all have different ways we want to handle incoming fear, right? I like to look at it coming. And, um, and then, frankly, I don't like to talk to other people about it as I see it coming. I like to have some answers for myself and s some answers that make it look like I have everything together. But I don't. So I was wrestle, wrestling with fear, and, um, and so <laughs> my beloved wife, who's not here this morning, who's of Marion, um, she had, she had kind of called me out a couple times because, like I say, I like to look at the meteor coming. And so um, she's, she knows that I've been, like, lately has been spending more time, like, watching news and those kind of things. And um, I would say Melissa has an A game and a B game and a C game, and she definitely did a B game at least. Um, a game is when... My wife walks in, and like, trusting the Lord, there's peace in her heart, and like, hey, I just want to call you to this, right? right. B game is, out of her mouth comes, I want to call you to this, but in her eyes is sheer panic. Okay, <laughs> B game this week. Very gracious words, like, I want to call you to this. C game is panic, and like, let's talk about it now. That's C game, that's bad game for me. So it's B game, where she's like, a little bit of panic on the face, like, I'm kind of worried, but just I like, trust the Lord with you, right? So I really appreciate that. It was good. It was calling as my partner in life calling me back to trust in Jesus in a strong way. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the B game so much. And the B game is so much more helpful to my heart than the C game, too. A game is awesome. But um, <laughs> nonetheless, 
my heart, whether it's an A game or B game or a C game, I need, to, I need to listen to that wise counsel in my life and this wise counsel and chase after Jesus. And so um, I've been wrestling with fear. And I don't think I'm the only one in the room who's been wrestling with fear. And uh, we see all this junk happening, all this terrorism happening and, and, and brutality in the Middle East. Um, we're coming up on a season here where they're going to try to pass a law in our state to, to make fair game on babies until their last toe is out of the womb. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff on top of that, just stuff everywhere. So my heart's been really um, struck and swirling. So I want to read, I want to go through a passage this morning in 1 Peter that I think would be helpful in getting our minds on track. And the reason I think it's helpful getting our minds on track is because it talks about getting our minds on track. So please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We are going to move quickly through 1 Peter chapter 1 and into half of 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read it and I'm just going to point a couple things out. Here's why. You don't need the words of Scott Burns. You need God's words, okay? And here's a, I want to be able to practice something here where you're just going to see you're going to see what God says out of the text, okay? That's why you got to read it because it's going to be confusing if you're not kind of reading it. And I'm just going to point out a few things as we go along in this text, okay? So here we are. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. He says saying this to, to people who are Christians, he says, "Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope, better word, certainty, fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So first call to action. Prepare your minds for action. Don't go with where your mind wants to go. Looking out the window at the meteor coming in, turning your back to it, getting drunk on the couch or getting drunk on Netflix or whatever you happen to get drunk on in your mind, with your mind occupied, just going offline. So preparing your mind for action. So Christ, the Spirit of God, through the pen of Peter here is telling you, Christian, get your, get your head in your hands. Don't go with what's natural. Get your head in your hands, your mind. Preparing your minds and being sober-minded. So that's the opposite of drunk, and it's not talking simply about intoxication or weeding, weed intoxication, those kind of things. Whatever tends to like absorb you and, and bring your attention becomes the lens that you think and you're emotionally experiencing the world through. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So set your hope fully. So we know that the word hope, it's the, it's the one word in our English Bibles that is a really bad word. Because in English, for most of us, most of the time we use hope, it's used in the least likely possibility sense. Right? When like, oh, I sure hope the weather turns nice. I don't know, I'm hoping it's going to go. We usually think that's a not likely going to happen thing. In the Bible, it is a certain thing. It's a certainty that's not yet happened. So remember that when you're reading hope in, in your scriptures, I'm not going to make a crusade to like change all the words hope in the scripture. Just know that your English has changed so much that when you see hope, you think not likely. When you see hope in the scripture, it's completely happening. So set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's telling us, get your, get your mind in your hands and place your certainty on how Christ will be treating you someday. That's where you like put hope. So to Scott Burns, take your hope out of the American dream. Take that hope, that certainty out there, and place it here. 
future life with Jesus and all the beautiful, wonderful ways that he will treat me for all of eternity. So hope shift, certainty shift. What do I bank on? I no longer bank on the, the American dream of Scott Burns. I bank it on Christ and all of the grace that he'll give me when I see him in the revelation of Jesus. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the, to the passions of your former ignorant. ignorance. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So as a, as a child of God, as a person who's trusting the gospel, and I'll explain the gospel in one second, it changes you to all of a sudden children. You now become a child of God. Options A or B. Son of God, daughter of God. Um, I was sitting with a, a lady this week who I think is great, who I think knows Jesus in the most rudimentary way. And we've been, we've been in this relationship, we've been talking gospel back and forth again. And um, I asked a couple of questions because I, I wanted to really understand Jesus. I asked her a couple of questions and um, I just felt like they weren't making sense to her. And so then I said, well, hey, whose girl are you? And we went through that and so eventually we worked out, okay, whose girl are you? She goes, I'm God's girl, right? Because that's really what you are. You're the adopted daughters. You're the adopted sons of God. So God references that covenant child-father relationship as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So in the gospel, we are made children, and we are designed to follow our father, to obey our father, instead of being conformed, changing to the passions of your former ignorance. So the way God describes us before we come to God in Christ is ignorant. And it says a couple more things in the text, you'll see it. So we're often thinking through, like, how is God designed, how is he describing our situation? Our dis- situation, before we encounter Jesus, is vastly terrible. Uh, some of us done some gospel training lately and have these gospel discussions. The category of the fall of what we were is a, uh, an astoundingly insulting category until you come to appreciate that category. It's why, it's why people were so mad at Jesus, it's because when Jesus was explaining what's wrong with us, it's heavy words. Aliens and separated. And here, ignorant. So apart from God and understanding God through Jesus, his call on us is that we are living in ignorance. And out of that ignorance comes passions, a whole bunch of natural desires, just a bunch of natural ways. He says, live as obedient children, not following the natural desires of the ignorance that we came out of. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quotation out of Leviticus. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So speaking of 1992, um, I was uh, living in a dorm in California. I, it was a, like a discipleship dorm, uh, like a lot, some of you guys have experienced at Cedarville. And um, in this dorm, you know, part of, part of going to the school is saying, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I want to grow in Christ. Well, I started discovering, we don't mean the same thing with that. I don't even know how to describe it at that time. Um, but I have these friends that are like, oh yeah, I belong to Jesus. But then all of a sudden they have these categories of their life that didn't belong to him. And then, then when you'd ask about it, I'm not saying in a con- condemning kind of way, you're like, well, what about this? They're like, oh, come on, man. Let's not get too serious. Like, what do you mean not too serious? I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of new to gospel thinking. I'm like, what do you mean not too serious? Like, doesn't he own us? Like, what do you mean? Like, uh, you're, just, you're just too all up in the air on things. And I remember, I remember reading this passage 
one day um, as the Lord is teaching me hunger for his word, where he says, if you call on him, his father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And it's not a call to let's sit there kind of quaking under the table. You're called to remember you are a son or daughter of God. But whose daughter are you? Whose son are you? You're the son or the daughter of the living God who will judge the world. He's going after sin. So <laughs> don't play around with the treason that he pulled you out of and adopted you into his family. And I remember reading this passage going, man, what a... I, as I was having these discussions, I was having my first, like, honestly, adult discussions in fellowship with people. And I'm having a number of people saying, oh, I got Jesus. But they're like, ah, let's not get too serious. This passage says, get really serious. Get really serious. And so in God's kindness, because God's just so good to us, I started going back to some of these friends. Some of them are like lifelong brothers I love together with Jesus all the time now. I'm like, oh, what do you think about this? I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but you seem to say there's categories of like, oh, don't get too serious. This is looking pretty serious. I'm just saying like, what do you think about that? And some of them said, get away from me. Stupid. And some said, oh, I've got to think about that. Right? And, um, and we grew in fellowship, some of us. And some people peeled off and ran from Jesus. Notice what it says about the end of this verse, though. With fear throughout the time of your exile. So God describes us. I told you this would be kind of an uncommon sermon. We're just going to march this text. But just, you see where this is at. So you can go home and just slow bake on this all week if you want. Read it, pray it up. But look how he describes you. Conduct yourself in fear during the time of your exile. Because we exited from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but yet we're still walking around here with two legs and feet. And most of us are citizens of the United States, and some of us are citizens of other places. But he describes us always in the Bible as sojourners. We have a new citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, but we are left here, and we're left here on purpose. But this area here is called exile to us. It's not our home. Scott Burns' great American dream is Scott's stupid exile dream. Like, oh, man. I have the best exile ever. No, this is not my home. This is not where I belong. Like, I'm here. This is not where my home is. Look at 18. Knowing that you are ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. So, so remember that this is exile. That this is where we're living right now in exile. He goes, but remember this. Where did you come from? You came from, according to this, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So you were ransomed, you were bought at a price. So remember, in, in the divine plan of things, in the divine justice, God couldn't just look down and go, oh, Alex Rosefer, I'm going to give her a spiritual mulligan. Ah, let's just like, I know she's, yeah, let's just kind of wipe that away and let's just let her be alive. She had to be ransomed. She had sin, like I did, that had to be paid for. We were under bondage. We were owned by the evil one. And so God became flesh and walked among us so that with that flesh he could die to pay Alex's cost and pay my cost because we're ransomed. And we're not ransomed from both little things like a little bit of silver or gold or cash, but with the precious blood of of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so he's, he's calling your mind to say, hey, take dead serious this life that God's given you because look how much it cost. It wasn't a free giveaway. It cost the Son of God becoming a man. 
And for them, he needed to become a man so he could die a man's death. You were bought with blood. You were bought with the suffering and the death of Jesus. It meant a lot. You meant a lot to the Lord to pay that price to bring you to himself. And the price he paid was phenomenally enormous. I mean, who wants to, you know, right now we're here in America, I believe. And, um, and right now over in Israel is war. There's this big safety distance between Ohio and Israel. Um, and we feel it. You would feel totally different if you hopped off the airport at Tel Aviv this, this afternoon. You'd feel total difference. Remember, Jesus is sitting in heaven in perfect joy, in perfection, needing nothing. And he comes from heaven to earth, to the pits of earth, by the way, to Israel, to be born in a town about 10 miles from where these attacks happen, into poverty, into another terrorist activity right off the bat there. And he experiences all that for you and for me. And then he doesn't give up, but he keeps going for you and for me. And then he teaches us. And then he lets himself be killed. They did not capture him. Remember, when they came to him in the garden and he said, I am, it knocked them all over. Remember, he flattened the entire ecosystem of weather with words. Remember, he calls dead people who have, don't have functioning ears out of the grave. He wasn't captured. He gave himself over to be butchered for you and for me. And it's the precious blood of Jesus. So why would you be serious, according to the Spirit of God and Peter? Because you remember the incredible cost of what it took to break you a son or daughter of God. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This was in God's plan, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. It was shown for the last time for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So when he says, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Just as a moment of thought, as you're watching the news back and forth and everybody's claiming their faith systems, here's the claim of the God of Scriptures. By Jesus, and only by Jesus, do we know the one and true God. Only by Jesus. So no matter what word you use to describe God, unless that God... Uh, so for instance, the English word God. Um, Bible's not written in English. It's written in Hebrew uh, and Greek primarily. And the word G-O-D isn't in there because it's written in Hebrew and Greek. But we use the word God in English. But who are we talking about? We are talking about the one who made all things and the one who's revealed himself through Jesus and what he's done. So unless that God, whatever the name is, if you want to use the name uh, El or Allah or Yahweh or God or Dios, whatever the name is you want to use him, unless that God is the one who is the ruling God of heaven, who gave us the scriptures, who sent Jesus Christ as his son to die and rise again, that God isn't the right God. And the only way we will ever know and have a relationship with that God, according to this, and I might just encourage you just to, like, if, if you're not reading, just to hear me. He says, through him, that's Jesus, we are believers in God. The only way to believe in God is through Jesus Christ, period. No Jesus, no worship of Jesus, no God for you. No trusting in Jesus, no God for you. 
No hope in Christ alone, no God for you, no God for me. This God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory says your faith and your hope are in God. So he goes behind this whole scenes is God who is doing all this. And, in it, and the work of Jesus is God's plan. It is God's only plan. It was the plan before he said he was foreknown. It was the plan before the earth was even created. So God, the only way we know him is through Jesus Christ, who's the, the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds all things by the word of his power. Looking at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So if we are thinking about who we are in God because of what Christ has done for us, what is the outworking? What is the outworking of the, of the serious mind? The mind has grasped it. Verse 22, purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So, um, if you're new to Bible reading, when it says love one another, one another in the New Testament means other family members in the family of God almost every single time. It's not, it's not saying don't love other people, but particularly when it says love one another, it means love other Christians, the other family of God. Uh, does anyone here remember the, the, the new commandment Jesus gave, right? A new commandment I give you that you love not others, but one another. That's the new part of the new command. So he says here, the serious mind empties himself of all the junk for a true and sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So where does the serious mind goes? The serious mind really pays attention to the people sitting around you right now because, because this is our church. I mean, some of you guys are visitors and we are so thankful you're here. Um, but for most of us, this is our church family. Who are the one others? They're sitting around us. They're sitting in front of us. And apparently half of us are traveling this morning or getting sweaty at the marathon. These are the one another's around us, right? And he says, earnestly, truly, with zeal, like love one another, invest. Don't get like, it's not saying, well, just don't get in fights with them. But really, pour your hearts and your lives into them. God leaves you here to love earnestly and diligently the one another's in Christ Jesus. Since, verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word, for the grass withers and flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he goes, okay, the serious mind empties itself of all that junk, right, so we can love diligently, earnestly, sit back in our, in our backyards and our fire pits and crack our knuckles in prayer going, all right, all right. Um, Nathan Barnes, all right, Lord. How do you want me to pray for Nathan Barnes? How do I love that man? Um, you know, we, we pray for earnestly love for one another, care for one another. Why? The why is found in 23. Because you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, but a perishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. So the, the reason we do that is because we have been made new. And the way we were made new is because the divine eternal one has given us his divine eternal word and we heard that word, and by that word, we became new. We heard the gospel, we believed it, and God gave us a new life. And so now we are different. We're not merely just humans. We are now born again as the children of God with the Spirit of God in us. We are now serious about loving one another because we are eternal, because our Father is eternal and gave us the eternal word. Look at verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation 
if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So, if I want to be serious, think seriously about the life God's given me, and I want to love one another because I've been made alive through the Word of God, which is eternal, from the eternal Father, um, how do I do this? He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I've probably told a lot of you guys, you heard before, uh, since I'm in the ni- early 90s this morning, let's just roll with this. Um, in 1991, as a freshman in college, I'm hearing this stuff preached, but I realize, honestly, I don't really care. I mean, I do care, but I'm not hungry for God's Word. And I've become aware of it, and I'm kind of hiding it, whatever. But eventually, I just have a good old-fashioned discussion with my Heavenly Father, because I know I'm saying, God, I don't have a hunger for your Word. Please give me a hunger for your Word. And then he gave me wisdom that until you give me a hunger for your Word, I'm going to be in your Word. Uh, I'm not going to sit there like, well, make me like your Word. Make me like your Word. So I started getting up early, going to the cafeteria, and doing my devotions in the cafeteria. And I'm just reading the New Testament like crazy. I'm memorizing all kinds of stuff. It's so good. And you know what he did? He gave me a hunger for his word that year. And he taught me passages like this. Actually, both of these verses I discovered that very first year after praying that way. And so it, it is, isn't it interesting? The God of heaven tells you to long for the spiritual milk of the word. He doesn't say notice the long for. He calls you to get hungry for it. That's funny. That's funny. Think about that. So you're commanded to get a hunger for something. So how do you do that? You sit there right now and go, mmm, mmm. I'm just going to whip up a case of mmm, hunger. No, I would say, brothers and sisters, never own up the fact that you don't get hungry for it. Ask the Lord for it. And then get your nose in the text until you start tasting what is lovely that you just spiritually can't taste yet. So ask him for that help. Ask him to give you hunger for his word. If, if something's happened, if indeed, verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And here's a question, my friends. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, have you tasted that God is good? Not just right, but good. Like, does that make sense? When you say, thirst for the pure milk of the word, if indeed you taste that God is good, does that, is that a throwaway? You're like, yeah, I have. I, I know I've tasted that God is good. And when I've tasted that God is good, it is better than any goodness on earth. Any of those American dream things I have, they're not as good as when I taste the goodness of God. So if you haven't tasted the goodness of God, might I ask you to get on your knees and say, God, let me taste this. Let me understand that you're deploying me to something way more in authority, to the goodness and delights in you. But if you have tasted it, remember it. Journal it. Write it down. Remember that you have. Remember how much better the goodness of God is than anything else that he's given you, even all the good gifts he's given you. Verse 4, on to 8. As you come to him, a living stone. Okay, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion, that's Israel, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and that stone is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they did not obey the word as they were destined to. So here's a little tricky thing. Uh, You may not see it in your first reading here. He says, all right, you thirst for the pure milk of the word, having tasted that God is good. And what happens? You come to Jesus, 
and Jesus will do one of two things for you. Number one, if you don't, if, if you don't want him what, he get, what he's offering you, you're going to hate him in the end. He's going to be a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. He's going to get in your way. And you're going to want to get rid of him because he is just a problem to you and to your agenda, those kind of things. So option A, Jesus is a problem. Option B, and here's the tricky part, cool part, Jesus is a foundation. A, a problem. B, a foundation of something that I am corporately being built together with. This is tricky. So maybe a little deeper than, deeper than what, maybe the rest of this. So just think about this. The description of believers here in the verses to follow is that the life before is a life of ignorance. Life before is a life of, of futility, according to this. And the life before was a life that found Christ to be an obstacle and annoyance. But the new life, the opposite, is when you're a son of God, a son of a uh, daughter of God, you're a citizen of heaven, you've been brought to life, and you're not isolated at all. You are a rock among many rocks in this passage here, being a house, being built up for the pleasures of God, for God to be pleased. Um, you're not a fancy little polished rock that sits on a shelf. So we do in Western Christianity tend to think of this isolated Christianity like, oh, it's just Jesus and me. There's no such thing as Jesus, just Jesus and me. If you're with Jesus, you're going to be brought into those who are Jesus's. Jesus's? Well, you know what I mean? Not plural Jesus, possessive Jesus. <laughs> you're brought into that and you're part of the building. You're interdependent. You're designed for that. J Jesus, if he's not, so what happens if Jesus is not going to be a good foundation for you as you are built together with other believers for God, he's going to be an annoyance to you. So what is Jesus being used for by you? Safety? Trying to bro one off of him? A little bit of feeling better? Or do you see what your purpose is, which is being brought together into a corporate group called the church? Our church is part of it. Worldwide church. Where we are, you're a rock. You might be on the bottom, top. I don't know where it is. But you're part of the building. And you're not designed to live alone. You're designed to live in the walls with us. And we all need this Jesus as a foundation. And if you don't need Jesus as a foundation, you're going to find Jesus to be very, very annoying. Look at verse 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people, and you, once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Because we as believers, every last one of us, we're not good. We are all people who receive the mercy of God. We have this commonality in it. The purpose of this corporate people, this building of God, that God is building up, Christ is the foundation. He loves that foundation, and he loves the walls, and you're the walls, I'm the walls. He loves it. That spiritual house has a function. It is a group of people that is a kingdom of priests that represents God to this world. It is a group of people designed as a kingdom of priests to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. You'll either in the end get really hacked off at Jesus and throw him to the side, or in the end you'll find that he is the foundation for you and your fellowship, and that you and your fellowship have a design. Our design is to together, not just independently, but together to proclaim the excellencies, the sweetness, the goodness, the justice, the rightness, the beauties of Jesus 
to the world around us as a kingdom of priests because that one, that good one, called us out of darkness, out of ignorance, out of futility, out of word rejecting and Jesus rejecting, called us out of that into something marvelous, a marvelous light. Through his mercy, we're all those people of mercy. So in summary, as we go through this, um, I just think it's just a fatty, fatty, amazing passage. And you can just read it yourselves. You know what I'm saying? I didn't say hardly anything today you couldn't have picked up by reading it yourself. But maybe the, the, the reading through would help you. As we get our minds on and we don't live in fear, first of all, we, we capture our minds. We capture our minds. We turn our minds towards Christ, our hope fully in Him. We turn from our natural desires and passions to push into holiness and the likeness of Christ, fleeing from sin. We then see that we are always reminding ourselves of our gospel centered, that we belong to God, and that has happened by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we take serious the life of loving one another with strong intentionality because we are eternal now, birthed through the eternal, the eternal word of the eternal God. And remembering the goodness of God that we have tasted, we foster a thirst for God's word, embracing our purpose as a corporate body of people, always, that are designed to bring God pleasure and designed to bring the story of this amazing God to a world that needs it so much, just like we needed it. And to experience him like we are just now experiencing him now. So, brothers and sisters, maybe blessed and read it. Read half, read it all, but from 13, chapter 1, verse 13, to 210. It's all just sitting there. So many things for you to read and quickly turn back to God and say, what do I do about this? How does it settle in on me? If we do this, it will change our minds of fear. We can still look out the window and stare at a meteor, or we can turn back from the window and attend to the people in our house, those things that are coming. Christ has told us that life is hard here, but he's left us here in purpose. He's left us here for three things, for his glory, for our joy, and the hope of the world. So let's not live in our idols, thinking in our idolatrous ways, therefore giving into distraction or giving into fear, but let's be sober-minded, readying our minds for action. And what does that mean? That means reading and thinking through the things in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. And consider them. Learn some things new that you've never known before. Have things enforced that you've known before. Ask the Lord to bring back to life things that once were precious to you and have dried up and gotten crispy in your soul. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of it. And I pray that you would, by your word, help us today. I pray that you would give life to those who have not yet trusted in you. Even now, Lord, that they would look to you, Jesus, and repent, ask you for salvation, trust the work of Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room and online who are watching this. I, I ask you, Father, um, help us prepare our minds for action. Help us be sober-minded. Draw our minds to these truths, Lord, and feed our souls so that we have the joy and the strength that you've designed us for to accomplish the mission that you've left us here for. Father, our job is not to simply survive. Our, our job is to thrive in you and be used by you in ways that we could never, ever imagine in whatever context you put us. So, Lord, please pull us out of our natural inclinations and passions and pleasures of our life and our former ignorance and set our minds set our eyes upon the excellent one who called us out of darkness in a marvelous light. And all my brothers and sisters said, Amen.